You're listening to Radio Maria, Christian Bushing Home. Renappers in the show. Jesus the Promised Messiah in Judaism with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, speaking of sacraments, if I may, we are still in this very, very uh, mournful and tragic period, twice over. Of course, it is Lent, which is dedicated to dwelling on our what our Lord did for us, actually, his suffering and his death, and as a result, our promise of eternal life. But this Lent, of course, many of us have been forced to confront a sacrifice, a giving up of something which we never have before, which is of the most blessed sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist. And it varies from diocese to diocese around the country, but in many dioceses, the churches are locked and one can't even pray before the tabernacle. Um, There's no exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. There are no public masses. And in much of the country, there's even no ability to receive communion, to um, partake of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord and Savior Jesus in the most blessed sacrament. So I wanted to kind of dedicate this show. Um, this will be the last one that I dedicate to this fast from the Eucharist, so to speak, which has been imposed on us. Um, but I did want to dedicate this second show to that. Uh, last week I, I spoke of most of the show about this also. Uh, it is a live call-in program. And uh, today I am inviting you to call in at any point. Uh, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y, because I want to be have us be a little bit of a support group, I think, for those of our listeners who feel um, tragically cut off from the absence of the Eucharist. By the way, I will say, because I uh, thank all of our non-Catholic listeners, all of our Protestant listeners, that I have never felt as much um, pain in my heart about what the state of um, Christians outside of the Catholic Church is, as I have in these past few weeks without the Eucharist. Um, I now realize from a experiential perspective how much is how much is lost how much is missing without the physical union with christ which is available through the eucharist so my heart goes out to you in a special way and it certainly rekindled my prayers for all christians to be able to once again gather around the eucharistic table so to speak and enjoy enjoy the intimacy with our lord that he suffered and died in order to bring us in its fullest form, which is, of course, the sacraments, including the Eucharist. So, and of course, we know that this uh, situation has been brought about by the uh, coronavirus epidemic. I I am not actually going to make a relevant kind of um, semi-political statement about it, because I personally have some reservations about how how dire the situation really is and whether such a draconian response was necessary. And if somebody is wondering what on earth I'm talking about, I would simply point 
you back to the predictions about the SARS virus, the predictions about the Ebola virus, the predictions about the swine flu, when they first emerged, they were also claimed to bring about deaths in the millions. And instead, um, none of them amounted to more than an ordinary flu season, actually, uh, in terms of the, um, you know, the, the morbidity in terms of how many people died, how many people got gravely ill. So I saw, I wonder, but anyway, that is neither here nor there, but there, uh, in past, uh, plagues and past epidemics, of course, the church has tended rather than to shut down masses, how to, they, the church has tended to redouble the prayer. And so I want to start today's show with a very, very, very beautiful hymn that was composed at the time of a terrible epidemic in Portugal. And um, I don't have the century here. I would imagine it's around 16th, 17th century. Uh, the town of Coimbra in Portugal had been visited by a terrible plague. And the nuns of St. Clare, that is, of course, the poor Clares, offered their prayers in the form of the following hymn or prayer, whereupon the epidemic instantly ceased. Um, the, I will be playing a recording of this incredibly beautiful hymn or prayer. It's sung by a small musical group called Harpa Dei. Harpa mean well, the Harpa Dei be Latin, being Latin for the harp of God. Harpa, H-A-R-P-A, Dei, D-E-I, or the harp of God. And it's available on YouTube. A number of their chants are available on YouTube. And as a little bit of a commercial, they provide the music at the masses. Uh, they're based in Jerusalem, so whenever I lead a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, Harpa Day are recruited by me to provide our musical accompaniment for the pilgrimage, and it's very, very beautiful and deep prayer. So before I, I play that hymn as a prayer for a lifting of this uh, pestilence, so to speak, let me read the uh, translation of it. First of all, the name of the hymn is Stella Celli, or the Star of Heaven. And the words are the following. It's a hymn to the Blessed Virgin Mary, of course. Oops, excuse me for that um, horrible interruption. It's a hymn to the Blessed Virgin Mary, of course. And the words are the following. The star of heaven that nourished the Lord drove away the plague of death, which the first parents of man brought into the world. May this bright star now vouchsafe to extinguish that foul constellation whose battles have slain the people with the wound of death. O most pious star of the sea, preserve us from pestilence. Hear us, O lady, for thy son honors thee by denying thee nothing. Save us, O Jesus, for whom thy virgin mother supplicates thee. Pray for us, O holy mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. And is followed by a prayer, let us pray. O God of mercy, God of pity, God of benign clemency, thou who hast had compassion on the affliction of thy people and hast said to the angel striking them, Stop thy hand, for the love of this glorious star, whose breast thou didst sweetly drink as an antidote for our crimes, grant the assistance of thy grace, that we may be safely freed from all pestilence and from unprovided death, and mercifully save us from the gulf of eternal perdition. Through thee, Lord Jesus Christ, King of glory, 
who lives and reigns world without end. Amen. And with that, I'll play the hymn sung by Harpadei. So that was the beautiful prayer hymn, Stella Celli, the star of heaven, to ask the Blessed Virgin Mary to um, intercede with her son to, as the prayer says, may this bright star now vouchsafe to extinguish that foul constellation, uh, preserve us from pestilence, hear us, O Lady, and so forth. So with that, as a little backdrop, let me go into the uh, main body of the show, um, the Eucharist. First of all, let me begin by reading a paragraph from the Diary of St. Faustina. It's paragraph uh, 914, and it's about what really happens at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Oh, what awesome mysteries take place during Mass. A great mystery is accomplished in the Holy Mass. With what great devotion should we listen to and take part in this death of Jesus? One day we will know what God is doing for us in each Mass and what sort of gift he is preparing in it for us. Only his divine love could permit that such a gift be provided for us. O Jesus, my Jesus, with what great pain is my soul pierced when I see this fountain of life gushing forth with such sweetness and power for each soul while at the same time I see souls withering away and drying up through their own fault. O Jesus, grant that the power of mercy embrace these souls. And a quote from St. Padre Pio, It would be easier for the world to survive without the Son than for it to do so without the Holy Mass. So um, with that as a little introduction, I am going to now read the passage from St. Anne Catherine Emmerich on, uh, in, of her vision of the institution of the Eucharist, of course, at the Last Supper, Jesus in the presence of the Apostles, celebrating the Passover Seder, his last Passover Seder on earth, the ultimate Passover Seder, the true fulfillment of the Passover Seder, because every Passover Seder throughout those 
what 1500 years or whatever it was of Judaism was simply a prefigurement of the true offering of the Paschal Lamb, which of course would be the Lamb without blemish, Jesus himself, the following day on Good Friday. So here is Anne Catherine Emmerich's eyewitness, so to speak, description of the institution of the Most Blessed Sacrament. Peter and John now brought from the back part of the hall where the Paschal hearth was, the chalice they had brought from Veronica's house. They carried it between them in its case, holding it on their hands, and it looked as though they were carrying a tabernacle. They placed the case on the table before Jesus, the plate with the ribbed paschal loaves, thin and whitish, stood near under a cover, and the other half of the loaf that had been cut at the paschal supper was also on the table. There was a water and wine vessel also. Jesus' place was between Peter and John. The doors were closed, for everything was conducted with secrecy and solemnity. When the cover of the chalice had been removed and taken back to the recess in the rear of the chenelicum, Jesus prayed and uttered some very solemn words. I saw that he was explaining the Last Supper to the apostles, as also the ceremonies that were to accompany it. It reminded me of a priest teaching others the Holy Mass. Jesus then drew from the flat board upon which the vessel stood a kind of shelf, and took the white linen that was hanging over the chalice and spread it on the shelf. I saw him next take a round, flat plate from the chalice and place it on the covered shelf. Then, taking the loaves from the covered plate nearby, he laid them on the one before him. The loaves were four-cornered and oblong, in length sufficient to extend beyond the edge of the plate. I'm just going to interrupt and to point out that if any of you have seen Passover matzahs, you'll recognize them in this description of the bread that Jesus consecrated for the first Eucharist. Um, Anne Catherine Emmerich describes them as ribbed paschal loaves. Of course, matzah have ribs. They have these vertical stripes on them, and they're four-cornered and oblong and of length sufficient to extend beyond the edge of the plate and so forth. In fact, to this day, the reason why the Eucharist in the Western Church has to be confected out of unleavened bread is precisely because the bread from which the very first Eucharist was made at the Last Supper was the Passover bread, the matzah, which is unleavened. Back to Anne Catherine Emmerich. Then he drew the chalice somewhat near to himself, took from it the little cup that it contained, and set to the right and left the six smaller vessels that stood around it. He next blessed the Passover loaves and elevated the plate of bread with both hands, raised his eyes toward heaven, prayed, offered, set it down on the table, and again covered it. Then, taking the chalice, he received into it wine and water, the former poured by Peter and the latter by John. The water he blessed before it was poured into the chalice. He then added a little more water from the small spoon, blessed the chalice, raised it on high, praying and offering, and set it down again. After that, Jesus held his hands over the plate upon which the loaves had lain, while at his bidding Peter and John poured water on them. Then, with the spoon that he had taken from the foot of the chalice, 
he scooped up some of the water that had flowed over his own hands and poured it upon theirs. Lastly, the same plate was passed around and all the apostles washed their hands in it. During all this time, Jesus was becoming more and more recollected. He said to the apostles that he was now about to give them all that he possessed, even his very self. He seemed to be pouring out his whole being in love, and I saw him becoming perfectly transparent. He looked like a luminous apparition. In profound recollection and prayer, Jesus next broke the bread into several morsels and laid them one over another on the plate. With the tip of his finger, he broke off a scrap from the first morsel and let it fall into the chalice. Again, Jesus prayed and taught. His words, glowing with fire and light, came forth from his mouth and entered into all the apostles excepting Judas. He took the plate with the morsels of bread and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. While saying these words, he stretched forth his right hand over it as if giving a blessing, and as he did so, a brilliant light emanated from him. His words were luminous as also the bread, which as a body of light entered the mouth of the apostles. It was as if Jesus himself flowed into them. I saw all of them penetrated with light, bathed in light. Jesus presented the bread first to Peter, then to John, and next made a sign to Judas, who was sitting diagonally across from him to approach. Thus Judas was the third to whom Jesus presented the blessed sacrament, but it seemed as though the word of the Lord turned back from the mouth of the traitor. I was so terrified at the sight that I cannot describe my feelings. Jesus said to Judas, What thou art to do, do quickly. The Lord then administered the blessed sacrament to the rest of the apostles, who came up two and two, each holding for his neighbor a little stiff cover with an ornamental edge that had lain over the chalice. Jesus next raised the chalice by its two handles to a level with his face and pronounced into it the words of consecration. While doing so, he was wholly transfigured and as it were transparent. He was as if passing over into what he was giving. He caused Peter and John to drink from the chalice while yet in his hands, and then he set it down. With a little spoon, John removed some of the sacred blood from the chalice to the small cups, which Peter handed to the apostles, who, two by two, drank from the same cup. Judas also partook of the chalice, but he did not return to his place, for he immediately left the upper room. The others thought that Jesus had given him some commission to execute. He left without prayer or thanksgiving. And here we may see what an evil it is to fail to give thanks for our daily bread and for that bread which endures to life eternal. The remains of the sacred blood in the chalice the Lord poured into the small cup that fitted into it. Then, holding his fingers over the chalice, he bade Peter and John to pour water and wine upon them. This ablution he gave to the two to drink from the chalice and, pouring what remained into the smaller cups, passed it down among the rest of the apostles. After that, Jesus wiped out the chalice, put into it the little cup with what was left of the sacred blood, 
laid upon it the plate with the remains of the consecrated paschal bread, replaced the cover, wrapped the whole in the linen cloth, and deposited it in its case among the smaller cups. When he administered his blood and body to the apostles, it appeared to me as if he emptied himself, as if he had poured himself out in tender love. It is inexpressible. Jesus' movements during the institution of the Most Blessed Sacrament were measured and solemn, preceded and followed by explanations and instructions. Jesus, turning to the right and left, was full of gravity, as he always was when engaged in prayer. Every action indicated the institution of the Holy Mass. I saw the apostles, when approaching one another and in other parts of it, bowing, as priests are wont to do. Jesus now gave to the apostles an instruction full of mystery. He told them how they were to preserve the Blessed Sacrament in memory of him until the end of the world, taught them the necessary forms for making use of and communicating it, and in what manner they were by degrees to teach and publish the mystery. He told them likewise when they were to receive what remained of the consecrated species, when to give some to the Blessed Virgin, and how to consecrate it themselves, after he should have sent them the Comforter. Then he instructed them upon the priesthood, the sacred unction, and the preparation of the chrism and the holy oils. And so ends uh, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich's account of the Last Supper of the First Catholic Mass. I think it is totally apparent to us how similar it is to the Mass, even as it has extended into today. How many of the gestures, how many of the elements of what she saw are still to be seen in the Mass. And it is worth pointing out two details. One is that the ultimate, if you excuse the expression magic in the Catholic Church, is that of apostolic succession. In other words, Every priest, every Catholic priest who has the ability to turn the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ has that ability by virtue of apostolic succession. In other words, that priest was ordained to the priesthood when a bishop laid hands on him and conferred that power to confect the Eucharist on that priest. That bishop gained that power when he had hands laid on him by another bishop, who gained that power when he had hands laid on him by another bishop, and so forth back in time all the way to the apostles who were present at the Last Supper. In other words, when Jesus at the Last Supper, when Jesus was alive at the very first Catholic Mass, um, uh, imbued the apostles with the ability to propagate the priesthood. He, um, I'm trying to, I don't know the correct technical words, so I'm trying to avoid using any words incorrectly. But Jesus transmitted to those apostles at the Last Supper their role, their ordination, let's call it, as bishops. And with that ordination as bishops, he conferred on them the ability to uh, ordain other men as bishops. And every time one of those other men was ordained as a bishop, he then gained the ability to create, to turn other men into bishops, 
and to turn other men into priests who were able to consecrate the Eucharist. So there is an unbroken line, it's referred to as apostolic succession, from the Last Supper to your parish priest to the lowliest, newly ordained baby priest who was ordained three hours ago. There is an unbroken line of ordination that goes all the way back to Jesus laying hands at the Last Supper. And that is, so to speak, I, I, I half in jest use the word magic, but that is the most kind of supernatural, inexplicable, unduplicatable power in the Catholic Church, I believe, is that, is that apostolic succession that enables the Eucharist to come about. The uh, Eastern Orthodox Church also has apostolic succession, which is why the Catholic Church teaches and has always taught that the Eucharist in the Orthodox Church is also the true body and blood of Jesus, is, is also uh, validly consecrated, and transubstantiation takes place. So that, that power, that principle of apostolic succession has been held to in the Catholic Church, and it has been held to in the Eastern Orthodox Church, it has not been held to in the Episcopalian or Anglican Church. There has been a break in it, so it can't be assured that priests in the Anglican or Episcopalian Church actually have the power to confect the Eucharist. There are other issues there, too, having to do with their belief being possibly defective also. But in any case, the, the key element of apostolic succession is not assured to be there. And obviously... In other forms of Protestantism, uh, even less so, because the Anglican Church actually is a little bit of a hybrid situation where one can't know for sure that an Anglican priest has received his um, ordination through apostolic succession, but one, neither can one be sure that he hasn't, because there are some lines of bishops in the Anglican Church that still do have apostolic succession. That's a bit of a digression. However... In this um, hymn of praise, so to speak, to the Eucharist and to the Most Blessed Sacrament, I wanted to read that uh, very beautiful and stirring account of the very first Eucharist, which, of course, is also so visibly a Passover Seder. Now, we have come to the halfway point of the show, and uh, we usually have a short musical break. What my intention is at this point is to play...
That was, of course, O Sacred Head surrounded in keeping with this celebration of Jesus' sacrifice. That is, of course, the fabric of Lent. And we would not have the greatest gift that God has given mankind, that is the Eucharist, if except that it came through the suffering and death of Jesus. So the two are, of course, two sides of the same coin. Now, uh, by the way, let, I omitted saying it before the break, but this is a live call-in program, so if you'd like to call in at any point, please do so. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y, um, especially if you have a uh, comment or reflection on this fast from the Eucharist that we have been are being subjected to in most of the country and in much of the world right now. However, until a call comes in, I am going to read um, some passages from another Jewish convert, Charlie Rich. He was a Hasidic Jew, an ultra-Orthodox Jew uh, from Eastern Europe, moved to New York City, um, lost his Jewish faith there, lost his belief in God, tried to kill himself a number of times because life had no meaning without God, he received a miraculous gift of a conversion to the Catholic faith, um, truly supernatural. I have talked about that on other shows. He was just sitting in an empty church to get out of the heat. He was under a stained glass window of Jesus stilling the waters. He said to himself in his mind, if only it were true. And he heard, it is all true. And he received instantaneously the gift of faith and many of the truths of the Catholic faith. And uh, he's... Uh, his conversion is described at more length in my book, Honey from the Rock. Uh, however, much of his writings, he spent the rest of his long life, uh, about another 66 years, I think he was about 33 when this happened, and he died at about 99, uh, spending about 12 hours a day praying before the Blessed Sacrament exposed, living with a Jesuit community in New York City. And uh, much of his writings, much of his meditations are extolling the Blessed Sacrament, and, and Jesus in the Eucharist, which is why I'm going to turn to them now. Um, so here's Charlie Rich about, about what we have in the Eucharist. I have, since my baptism and First Communion, acquired a happiness which I would not exchange for anything in all the world. It has given to me a peace of mind and a serenity of outlook which I did not think was possible on this earth. I would much prefer to call it by the familiar language of Paul, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It would, in my case, have been in vain to have been born, had God not been good enough to extend me the grace to become a member of the mystical body of Christ that the Church of Rome is. Without the life Christ is, there is no life at all, and for him also the life Christ is, can only be had where he now so blessedly is. It is for heaven we have been made and for no other earthly good thing. It is to heaven every good and beautiful experience points and has in view. I became a Catholic so that I may in that way be happy not just for a few years but forever and ever. I became a Catholic that I may in that way get the grace to one day participate in the joys of the angels and saints in the life to come. It is to that life the grace of conversion is meant to lead. It is meant to lead to a happiness we cannot now imagine or conceive. 
One can never come to an end of enumerating the blessings conferred on one by the grace of being a Catholic. What mercy of the Lord can exceed the mercy of God, enabling me to believe all that the Catholic Church teaches? Can the mercy of God be made more manifest than in the grace extended to us to be members of the only true Church? It is being a Catholic that matters and not any other thing the world has to offer, however good and beautiful it may be. The Church of Rome gives us God himself. It does so in all his fullness. A greater gift than God is a human being cannot hope to receive. We receive the gift God himself is when we receive Holy Communion. Can Protestantism and Judaism endow the soul with such a sublime gift? It is to the Church we must go to have God in the fullness he may be experienced by us this side of heaven to become more intimately united with God than the Church enables us to be by means of the Holy Sacraments, we must take leave of this life. It is Christ the Church gives us, as he may be had under the conditions of this present life. To have God in all his fullness, we have to have the grace of membership in his mystical body. It is the voice of Christ the Church makes use of, when he says, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. John 10. There is a need in the soul for the presence of God in his naked essence. For a member of the household of faith, it is Christ in his Eucharistic presence that the saints go to for warmth of heart and mind and the consolations they stand in need of all the time they find themselves away from the home of the soul that Christ is in the state of glory. How joyous, how tremendously peaceful the hours have been that as a Jewish convert I have spent in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament. How sorry I feel for my fellow Jews who fail to have their God in that way in their own synagogues. Who is there who would want to go to a synagogue for the warmth of heaven's joys to be had in a Catholic church? And one might ask, What is a church without Christ's sacramental presence in her? Is not that place nothing else but just another building? In ancient times, God dwelt in the ark. He does so today in the tabernacle on the altar, in front of which a light burns to tell us that the Lord and creator of the universe is there present in the sacramental presence of his divine Son. Is this not enough to make a Jewish person dissatisfied with his synagogue's form of worship? Is there not a craving in the heart of a Jewish person for Christ the Lord, as he may be had on this earth by means of the Holy Eucharist? What can any religion have to offer which cannot give us Christ in his Eucharistic presence? So that when we go to the place where he is there present, we get the feeling that we shall have when we shall be with Christ in the state of glory, the state of glory which has its beginning right here on earth, so as to enable us to Taste and see how good the Lord is. Psalm 34. I think of all this as I find myself praying before the Blessed Sacrament. I think of all this as I do so, and as I do so, I am filled with compassion for the Jewish people who have no Christ on their altar to turn to for comfort in their innumerable earthly needs, for the kind of consolation to be had in Christ alone in his Eucharistic presence. I get a depressing feeling every time I pass his synagogue, knowing Christ has now transferred his presence from that place to where he exists in his sacramental state. 
I think of all this, and a dreary feeling comes over me, and I pray for those who know not Christ in his sacramental state, and they are not knowing Christ in that state, they do not have the grace to love, the grace to love, the love itself Jesus is. Come to me, all you who are weary and find life burdensome, and I will refresh you, Matthew 11, our Lord says to the Jewish people. How we should thank God for the fact that we are Catholics, so that we may in that way have Christ with us in the church near where we live. As Catholics, we don't have to go far away to find Christ, seeing that in his sacramental presence he resides at our very doorsteps in the nearest church we happen to find ourselves, so that to have heaven, all we have to do is to step inside and make an act of faith in the real presence, seeing that in that way we can all rise to the heights of the most sublime kind of prayer it is in the province of a human being to be able to experience. And although in the Old Testament God performed wondrous deeds, they are surpassed to an infinite degree in his making himself available to us in the Holy Eucharist. What are the marvels performed by Moses compared to those performed by the priest during the act of consecration? And so ends the reading from uh, Charlie Rich on uh, the Blessed Sacrament. There may be a silver lining. There may be a silver lining to this Eucharistic fast that we've been, that had imposed on us, uh, which is my prayer is that for the rest of my life, it might have had the effect of increasing my thirst and hunger to receive the Eucharist daily, if at all possible. That's my prayer for you too, that none of us may ever again take it for granted, or God forbid, go to Mass and receive um, on, on automatic pilot, so to speak, as a matter of course. But we should receive every communion as though it were our first communion and should receive every communion as though it might be our last Eucharist, our last communion. What a beautiful side effect that would be, a beautiful consequence of this fast from the Eucharist that would be. Um, so... And again, the um, you know, I it's obviously a tremendous disadvantage to be born and raised Jewish and not to have the Eucharist. However, there is a kind of um, side effect that's beneficial, which is reflected in this uh, reading that I did from Charlie Rich, which is that coming to the truth of the Catholic faith and coming to the uh, infinite gifts of the Catholic faith that are available in the sacraments, most particularly the Eucharist, uh, from outside, from half of a life spent outside of those gifts and outside of those truths, one can be perhaps a little bit more conscious of what one receives in the Catholic Church, and perhaps even at times a little bit more appreciative of it. And I think that might be reflected in that reading from Charlie Rich, and I think it might be reflected in... The next reading that I'm going to do, which is from um, Alphonse Radis, excuse me, it isn't, it's from Herman Cohen, another Jewish convert whose story is in Honey from the Rock, who had a miraculous conversion in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, actually during exposition when the Blessed Sacrament was raised in a monstrance, he had an instantaneous conversion to the Catholic faith. 
and spent the rest of his life literally extolling the Blessed Sacrament. He became a priest and a monk, and he took a private vow never to preach without extolling the Blessed Sacrament. And um, he took the name, uh, uh, in, uh, as a Carmelite monk, he took the name of Father Augustine Marie of the Most Blessed Sacrament. Um, now, uh, before I go into that reading, I will simply play one more short um, musical clip, I hope, if I can again master the, um, the technology of it, which is a uh, beautiful hymn to holiness itself, actually. It's an Armenian hymn um, and uh, from the uh, Armenian church, and it, uh, it's called Surp, S-U-R-P, which apparently is Armenian for holy, and is simply a hymn to God's holiness, so I will play that that short musical interlude. It's also sung by Harbadei, and after which I will um, read Herman Cohen's uh, meditations, let's say, on the Blessed Sacrament. That again was Harpa Day, um, and that hymn, by the way, I omitted to tell you, I should have, was sung uh, during Exposition of the Most Blessed Sacrament, um, uh, actually in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Now, uh, back to uh, Herman Cohen's um, verbal ex extolling of the holiness of the Most Blessed Sacrament. As I mentioned, he had an instantaneous conversion. He had been uh, Jewish. He had been very depraved. He was a professional musician. He was conducting a choir, um, filling in for a friend at a church service in Paris on Sunday afternoon. It happened to be um, a, a Eucharistic benediction service, 
And when the monstrance was elevated with the host in it, he had his instantaneous conversion. And I will now read from his own words about that moment. At the moment of benediction, I felt something deep within me as if I had found myself. It was like the prodigal son facing himself. I felt a great weight descend on my whole body, forcing me to bow and even kneel to the ground to spite myself. I bowed my head at the moment of benediction, and afterwards I felt a new peace in my heart. When the priest raised the host, my tears began to flow. It was a consoling and unforgettable moment. Lord, you were there with me, filling me with your divine gifts. I really pray to you, all-powerful and all-merciful God, and this memory of your beauty would be impressed on my inner being, proof against all attack, together with lasting gratitude for your favors. When I left the church, I was already a Christian in my heart. The Blessed Sacrament remained the center of Herman Cohen's devotion. Just a year after that initial conversion experience, he started the Association of Nocturnal Adorers, a group of men dedicated to adoring our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament throughout the night. Back to his words. In order to contemplate you as fully as we desire, daylight hours fly by too quickly. I called together some like-minded Christians, and we went along to spend the nights in your churches, and the dawn found us still kneeling before you. O Jesus, my love, I should like to kindle in the hearts of my former friends the fire which burns in me. I should like to show them the happiness you give to me. If King David danced before the ark which prefigured you, O my true covenant, then with what songs of triumphs ought I to break out? Having loosened worldly bonds, I can now penetrate the dark cloud that surrounds the tabernacle and open myself to the piercing rays from the sun of your grace and plunge into the sea of light so as to be burnt in the flame of this blazing furnace. Then, taking shelter in the shade of this tree of life, I can taste its fruits. For me, those days and nights pass joyfully in intimate converse with your adored presence. Between the memory of today's communion and the hope of tomorrow's, God is united with the least of his children. If you no longer see me trying my utmost for applause and empty respect, it is because I have found my fame in the Eucharist. If you no longer see me wasting my resources in casinos or chasing riches, it is because I have found wealth and inexhaustible treasure in the cup of love sealed in the Eucharist. If I no longer come down and drown my worries in your noisy parties, it is because I am nourished at the wedding feast with the angels of heaven. It is because I have found true joy. Now that my eyes have seen and my hands have touched and my heart has beaten on the heart of God, I can only be sorry for your blindness in pursuing pleasures that are unable to fill your hearts. So come to this heavenly feast which has been prepared by eternal wisdom. Cast yourselves down at his feet. Give your heart to him and he will bless you. And you will taste joys so great that I cannot describe them for you unless you come and try them. Taste and see the sweetness of the Lord. Those last passages were from a homily that he preached after he had become a priest. As I mentioned earlier, Father Cohen took a private vow never to preach without extolling the Eucharist. 
Um, and as I said, in religion, he took the name Brother Augustine Mary of the Blessed Sacrament. And now I'm going to read some more passages from his um, homilies that extol the Blessed Sacrament. I am bathed in the milk of consolation and want nothing else but to see God's will alone in me and in everyone. Holy communion occupies me totally, either in thanksgiving or in preparation. I prolong these in such a way that my life is a continual communion. This, I think, is like the joy of heaven. Here, in the monastery, we are always in the real presence of the Eucharist. The highest degree of thanksgiving consists of giving back something more than one has received. It is in the Holy Eucharist that we find a surplus, something freely given. That is why the Holy Eucharist is the only thanksgiving offering worthy of God. God ordered the Israelites to keep a container filled with manna in the tabernacle in memory of the gifts he showered on them when he fed them in the desert. Manna has always been regarded as an image of the Holy Eucharist, but the name of the true manna, the lovely name Eucharist, expresses in one word all the treasures of God's goodness. Literally, in Greek, it means thanksgiving. But since human thanksgiving is not enough, this treasure is called the divine Eucharist, the divine act of thanksgiving, infinite and inexhaustible, suitable for the greatness and goodness of God. Oh yes, I know it, O oh my God. When I offer you this host of praise and love, I hear again your Father's voice from heaven as Jesus entered the waters of the Jordan and you said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If then we offer him his well-beloved Son who became our heritage in the divine Eucharist, we render to the Eternal Father a thanksgiving which is infinite, agreeable, one which is worthy of him, and thus supreme liturgical praise. In this way, brethren, we can give thanks to God, our divine mediator, Jesus, in the Eucharist, the sacrifice of the altar, and without it, we cannot give God the glory which is his due. It is by means of the divine Eucharist and by it alone that we can fulfill our debt of gratitude to God in a fitting manner. Adorable sacrament, blessed spring from which my dry lips can drink the first fruits of eternal life, my heart is filled with joy. I need to bless you and sing your praises in songs of joy and thanksgiving. It was hidden in the Eucharist that you revealed the truth to me, and the first mystery you revealed was that of your real presence in the blessed sacrament. Even then, although I was still a Jew, I wished to present myself at the holy table and receive you. When at last I could receive the heavenly banquet, I found there the strength I needed and I was changed. It became my protection and treasure. I longed to drink that living water and I hungered for the bread of angels. I am now obliged to sing joyful hymns to you because it was your sacrament which did all this, which turned me from what was harmful to a frugal life and from an extravagant life to one of a humbler kind. Oh, Jesus, my love, I dare say, if faith did not teach me that to contemplate you in heaven is a still greater joy, I would not believe that a greater happiness could exist than that which I experienced loving you in the Eucharist and receiving you in my poor heart, made so rich because of you. Now, um, uh, we've come, unfortunately, to the end of our uh, time in the show. Uh, I'd like to go out with a final um, hymn by this, uh, sung by the same 
by the same uh, small choir, the, the Harpa Dei. And uh, with that, I will close the show. It's the Akathistos hymn. Excuse my, um, my terrible pronunciation. It is a, an Orthodox hymn, and it is a, a hymn to the Blessed Virgin Mary, verse after verse after verse, extolling the infinite gift of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So with that, um, again, let me, let me try to master the technology here, which sometimes I do better than others. And with that, you've been listening to Roy Shoman on Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. And it's time to say goodbye for now. I hope you join us again next week. Same time, same place. And now here's the Aquathistos hymn. Madre de Cristo, baluarte de vírgenes, y de todo el que en ti se refugia, el divino hacedor te dispuso al tomar de ti carne en tu seno, Y enseña que todos cantemos en tu honor, oh inviolada. Salve columna de sacra pureza, salve umbral de la vida perfecta, salve tu inicias la nueva progenia. Oh, mm-hmm.